Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. It seems that, more often than not, the saddest stories involve the best people. I suppose that's one of the many reasons so many utter the phrase, life isn't fair. Given the formulaic approach the mainstream often takes to true crime type stories, it has become cliche, almost to the point of comedic, to describe victims of crime as being the type that would just light up a room, or someone who would give someone else in need the shirt off their back. However, when my guest and I speak positively about the young woman in the center of tonight's episode, we're being completely sincere. As you'll soon hear, an amazing young woman was found injured, frostbitten, and clinging to life under a Halifax bridge. When she succumbed to her injuries, her friends and family would know all too well that something terrible happened to a very special person. But what exactly happened? That's a much more complicated question. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, our topic will be the story of Holly Bartlett. The 31-year-old's death in March 2010 was ruled an accident. Police say the blind woman became disoriented one night and fell from the McKay Bridge on her way home. They concluded the investigation. It was wrapped up before Holly was, before we had her service. You know, that was the end of it. They thought, uh, poor little blind drunk girl, you know? And Holly was anything but a poor little blind drunk girl. Anything but. In life, Holly Bartlett was a conqueror. Born with a condition that would lead to complete vision loss, Holly refused to allow her blindness to get in the way of her mission to live life to its fullest. She had an active social life, a career, an education, and a network of friends and family that looked to her as an inspiration. But all the good things that were happening in Holly's life came to a screeching halt on a cold night in March of 2010. After spending a night out with friends, celebrating an upcoming graduation, Holly was found gravely injured in a nearly inaccessible area underneath a downtown Halifax bridge. The police investigation and the circumstances that would lead to her injuries, and in turn her death, would happen fast. The police believed the death was accidental. However, it seems that they're about the only ones who felt that way. Holly's friends, family, and supporters have been very vocal about their dissatisfaction with the police investigation of her death. An investigation many call at best flawed, and at worst, derailed by an ignorance about living with blindness. Now, in the absence of the police continuing their investigation into Holly's death, the case has attracted some investigative journalists, including a national CBC piece on the Fifth Estate. But in the nine years since Holly's death, there has been nothing as deep nor as thorough as the recent television documentary and its companion podcast series titled What Happened to Holly Bartlett. 
In this series, Holly's case is reinvestigated with the collaboration of many of those close to her. And when I decided to cover Holly's story here on Nighttime, my first step was to contact Maggie Rar, the host of the acclaimed What Happened to Holly Bartlett podcast, and invite her to share the story. But despite having a schedule as ridiculous as mine, Maggie was available and agreed to meet me at Halifax's beautiful downtown library for an interview. What will come next, the content of this episode, will be that discussion with Maggie Rar about a case that will both make you scratch your head and probably make you scream. My name is Maggie Rar. I'm a freelance journalist in Halifax. I started in radio and after I had a couple kids, I switched to print and came across Holly Bartlett's story through a local production company. Um, many years after I first heard it on the radio, Holly was a 31-year-old, very vibrant, intelligent woman who was just finishing up her master's um, studies at Dalhousie when um, she was found below the McKay Bridge uh, very early one March morning. And um, the case was closed very quickly, and her death was never considered suspicious. And the Bartlett's, her family, have had to live with that ever since. Mm-hmm. Now, Holly's story, it did receive some coverage locally, as well as a national CBC piece. But what inspired you and the team who worked on this show and podcast to dive so deep into it? Right. So aside from a piece that Tim Biscay wrote for The Coast um, a number of years ago called Holly Bartlett's Unlikely Journey, nobody had really taken the time to take a good, firm look at the police investigation and really find out who Holly was and the circumstances surrounding her death. So there was just so much there. And because we had the family on board and because we had all of these notes from Brian Parsons, who um, at the time was a a retired investigator who, you know, spent a bunch of his time looking into what had happened, you know, we had all of the medical records, the police reports, which weren't really redacted that much because the case was never considered suspicious. So things that you'd have to wait a year and a half as a journalist to get through FOIs, we just had right away. And, be, and But really it was because of the Bartlett family's um, willingness to share this story. Before we get into the, the tragedy that eventually found its way into her life. Yes. Just tell me a bit about about Holly. Yeah, so Holly um, Holly was blind. Uh, she was... I, I never got to meet her, um, but I have a very clear sense of her as a um, go-getter, as someone who was feisty and very, very sharp. Um, and she really, I think, was like a pushing the limit kind of gal so there's a great moment in the podcast where she just casually slides into conversation with one of her sisters that she just went skydiving the last weekend like can you imagine if you were going skydiving you'd be telling everybody about it you'd be freaking out and that's just so holly to be like by the way i did this you know um but she was also very um focused on her professional career and uh, her education she was very um I think meticulous and uh, serious and also just kind of a a ton of fun. Loved dancing, loved hanging out with her friends, having a few drinks. I think just like a classic, hardworking, 
really smart maritimer. You mentioned that uh, that she had a vis- vision impairment, but that kind of becomes a big part of, of her story. Can, yes. can you just tell me a bit about about her vision impairment, how it affected her life, and how she overcame that? Right. So Holly was born with a condition called microphthalmia, which at the time, um, Mary and her mother says doctors at the IWK had never seen before. Uh, what it means technically is that she has very small eyes. So she did have some vision in childhood. And then when she was getting on to 12, 13, her vision really started to, what vision she had started to rapidly decline. So she, you know, that's a, that's a tricky transition for any kid, right? Becoming a teenager. And on top of that, to have to deal with um, this loss of vision, uh, you know, Holly had to grapple with that. And I think that it really um, just made her stronger. She had a very precise sense of being, I think, and that she was not going to let this define her or hold her back. Um, And so she was completely, you know, blind by the time she was uh, an older teen and a young adult. And I think by that point, she had long since committed to herself that blindness wouldn't define her and that she was going to have the exactly the life she wanted to have. And it's just this heart-rending irony that that played such a big role in the failure to appropriately investigate her death. Just in general, like, what would have been going on in, in Holly's life leading up to the time, time of her death? Right. So Holly was working full-time for the province of Nova Scotia. Um, she was also finishing her um, uh, master's in public uh, administration at Dal. And not long before um, she died, the fall of uh, 2009, just months before all this would happen, Holly and her sisters and her mother learned that um, Holly's dad, Wayne Bartlett, had inoperable stage four lung cancer. And the family really came together um, at that time and just were facing this, you know, nightmare. Like, this, their, their dad is dying. Um, there's nothing they can do to stop it. And I think it just really speaks to the fortitude of the Bartlett family that they just it was like chin up we're doing this and we're we're gonna stick this out together so Kim Holly's eldest sister who actually just happened to be an oncology nurse in the United States moved back home for the time and they all attended all of Wayne's appointments together um but even though they were resilient and facing this nightmare it was it was a nightmare so Holly was gutted um at by the prospect of losing her dad and uh, very private, I think, about her fear and her grief. Um, and on the front, on the face of it, was really trying to um, just keep going. So her last night out was actually a celebration to mark the closing of um, this program that she was doing at Dow. So she was out with her, her schoolmates uh, to celebrate and they, you know, some would receive awards and yeah. Okay. This this last night of you know the celebration of wrapping up her her schooling it was March twenty sixth twenty ten, 
Yeah. Uh, which turned out to be her last last night. Uh, okay, set the scenes for us uh, as far as like what what was going on that night. Where was she? And just kind of walk us through her night up to her friends kind of seeing her go home. Right. So she was very busy in her life, um, but this. Uh, evening celebration was um, a big deal. She'd mentioned it to uh, Amanda, one of her sisters. She was really looking forward to it. So she met up with a friend um, to go to dinner at the Fireside, this restaurant that no longer exists. That used to be right around the corner right from here. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and then she and her friend stopped and got a bottle of wine, and they went to a house party at another classmate's house who lived near the university mm-hmm. club where the um, celebration was uh, to be held. So they were just having like a classic, you know, Nova Scotia night out. Like you go out to dinner, you go have a few drinks in someone's kitchen, you hang out, a lot of laughs. And then um, they all went to the university club for this event. Mm -hmm. And um, at one point, a taxi was called for Holly. And then awards were still being handed out and she decided she wanted to stay. So the first cab was uh, canceled or ignored. And then she stuck around. She switched to drinking water at that point. Um, And then, uh, yeah, eventually the second cab was called uh, just before midnight. And a friend guided her out to the car, not because she was too drunk, but because she, you know, wasn't super familiar with the layout and watched her get in. And yeah, that was uh, the last she was seen that night. So just before midnight, her friends see her get in the cab, go home. She's next seen the very next morning is yeah. when she's is found. Yeah, so um, at the time, there was this massive construction going on on the McKay Bridge. Um, so there were steel workers who would uh, basically arrive at daybreak for their shifts. Mm-hmm. And when they showed up that morning, the first guy through the gates uh, saw Holly laying at the base of this concrete abutment and it's a fenced-in, locked area. Like, you really... I mean, I'd heard about this and read about it, but you really have to be there to see how kind of baffling this physical layout is. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the steelworker arrives, and he sees Holly laying in her red peacoat at the base of the abutment, and he thinks that it's a dead body. And then they um, find her and discover that she's still clinging to life. And my impression was that this was a deeply traumatic um, event, even just for uh, the stranger who found her. Um, She was in really, really rough shape. So immediately, obviously, you know, first responders were called and they were fighting to save her. And she was in surgery within an hour. She she was in surgery for an hour. How long was she able, within an hour, how long was she able to survive? Like, how long did she fight these injuries? Well, so this was um, Saturday, early Saturday morning when she was found. And she had suffered um, blunt trauma to the head and was severely hypothermic. Her body temperature had dropped to 20. Um, and she, you know, was covered in, in bruises head to foot. So um, they fought as hard as they could. And then doctors, I mean, and um, those caring for her. Um, and then Holly's family would learn on Sunday morning that um, there was nothing they could do, and she died that day. So, so we're, I guess the, the part of the story that is 
fact or people know what's, what's going on is right up to the point that she leaves the bar, yeah. gets, gets in, in the cab um, when her friends see, see her go. So the last person that people know she was with would have been that cab driver. Yes. So like at least initially, what was his version of the story that would lead her from leaving the nightclub to eventually ending up there? Well, okay. So he has many, many versions, but the very first that he told police, he was never interrogated um, at by Halifax Regional Police at the station, by the way. They just had a casual conversation with him in his taxi in which he told them that he, it, to borrow his words, that it was a normal fare, that he picked her up and that he dropped her off at the front door of her condo and that was it. And that version of events would go on to change many times um, as he retold the story. So, okay. Do you know when his version, like what led to his version of the story changing? Well, the, when the first um, cop that talked to him, uh, when Holly's friends and family began expressing concern that this had been overlooked and not um, investigated as seriously as it should be, mm-hmm. What they, what the police told them, the Bartlett's and Holly's friends, was that he's a quote salt of the earth type of guy. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like he just said, "Yeah, I dropped her off. Nothing happened," and they bought and they bought it, and and it was no big deal. It was only later when Brian Parsons, who is the, is a retired investigator and the father of Peter Parsons, who was a very good friend um, of Holly's, and also was her orientation and mobility specialist. We might get into that later. But um, Peter and Brian started looking into this on their own after Holly's death. And Brian actually secured an interview with Paul Fraser, who's the taxi driver that dropped her off. Mm -hmm. And that's when things start to change. Okay. Now, the the police investigation was, and I'm using air quotes for investigation, but it was was very fast. And I wouldn't say hard and fast. It was just very fast. Yeah. What was their the initial findings or what was their explanation for her ending up fairly close to her home, but in this secluded area? Right. So this is the, the thing that just is so extraordinarily challenging to understand. But basically Holly was incredibly competent with her cane. She was really smart. She was no stranger to having a few drinks. However, the police, when they found her, at the base of this massive bridge. Also important to note, she was never on the bridge and security footage immediately ruled that out. Mm-hmm. Their theory is that she was dropped off by Paul Fraser in his taxi at the front door of her condo. Mm-hmm. But despite the fact that it was midnight on a Friday night, freezing cold, mm-hmm. for some reason, um, they believe that she became drunk and disoriented right outside the safety of her own front door, turned around, walked down the driveway toward the sound of that rushing bridge traffic, mm-hmm. took a right onto Northridge Road, walks 300 meters down the street, all the while away from her home, mm-hmm. and then this is where it gets strange, gets behind an apartment building at Kencrest, crawls through a hole in the fence, mm-hmm at the very, very base of the ground that she's, she was tiny. She could only just fit through it mm-hmm. down this incredibly steep, rough, craggy hill mm-hmm. where there's broken glass and, you know, shrubbery and roots and rocks. 
then climbs behind this huge cement abutment that is holding up the suspension of the bridge, climbs up this very, very, very steep concrete wedge and falls 20 feet uh, to the frozen ground below where she would be found some six and a half hours later. Wow. Do you know what led them to that conclusion? Or was that just the, like, it just seems like like someone's imagination running wild to lead to that. If you read through the police reports, you can see that there's a lot of confusion in those early hours. For instance, one of the investigators um, talks to a neighbor of Holly's and immediately wants to know where Holly's full-time caregiver is. Mm. And they were informed right away, like, no, no, she lived completely independently. There was no full-time caregiver. But they still sort of stuck to this theory. I mean, I think it's very clear if you read through the reports that they, their story of what happened was completely informed by um, their ignorance of uh, really understanding her blindness and what that meant for her. And one thing that comes out in your, in your podcast that I would never have thought of is the idea that with her being blind, the, the audio clue of, yes. the, of the row. Can you just kind of describe that? Because I, I never would have thought of that until I heard it explained on your show. Yeah, so this is one of the really um, cool things that I learned from Peter Parsons, who was a Holly's orientation and mobility instructor, which basically means that he would help um, teach her routes through the city. He mm-hmm. also has a visual impairment but has partial sight. Okay. Or has some vision loss, I should say. Um, And anyway, uh, he explains that um, people with vision loss rely on sound to um, navigate through the city. And that this is basically as there's a clarity there that is exactly like you or I looking across the street and seeing, oh, here comes a pickup truck behind it. There's a sedan. There's three people standing there. That these audio clues are as um, rich and illuminating as visual cues. Mm-hmm. And he, I should also say that Peter says that Holly Bartlett was basically his brightest client, that she would, he, he'd say, you know, you'd only have to show her once and she'd have it. Mm-hmm. So she knew exactly where she was. Yeah. And that visual, like the, the bridge, the almost highway leading to it, that would be very loud. And, and for somebody who uses audio clues to navigate the world yes. that would be like the equivalent of you or I just walking towards a building and walking into the wall exactly and it, as you say the sound of the rushing bridge traffic Holly knows that that's perpendicular to her driveway mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. she would never um, walk towards that and then Peter very beautifully explains in the podcast how even if you did get kind of confused or turned around that there are all these really um, intelligent uh basically like resets that you can do, like coping strategies that you can do if you do get turned around. So then you make the traffic parallel, you get yourself rerouted. Like mm-hmm. this is not something that, um, you know, she, she would have been so well-versed in that that anybody who knew her just immediately when the story came out, they, it w- they just outright rejected it. Like this would not have happened. The police basically reassure the Bartlett's in hospital when Holly was clinging to life, like, don't worry, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And they totally believed them. I mean, why wouldn't you, right? Mm -hmm. But then as the pieces started coming together and they presented this theory, 
and they had a ton of feedback saying this does not add up, mm-hmm. and, which was often rejected. Like Peter Parsons himself called the police to say, listen, like, you know, it would appear that you, here, let me just give you some information about what it's like to move through the world as a blind person. Yeah. And they were like, no, thank you. Basically, they didn't take the call. They didn't want the information. When Marion Bartlett, Holly's mother, tried to suggest, you know, ask questions to the police about, did you interview the taxi driver or can we get the GPS? Their response was, Mrs. Bartlett, you watch too much CSI. Hmm. So they were dismissed over and over and over again. And they never gave up. They kept trying to work with police. But I think it's been, yeah, an exhausting and painful experience. Yeah. Now, other than just the 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 police theory of, of what happened to her being doubtful, there, there was a lot of kind of unanswered questions and kind of red flags w- within the story. The, the first being the location she was found. Yes. We, we just discussed that. But the next is the cab driver. And he... As you kind of hinted to earlier, he very quickly kind of took on the role almost of a villain a villain in the story where his story continued to change and almost for the worse with every change, it seemed. Can you just kind of walk through the versions of his story? Yes. And, and what things make him, I don't know if suspicious is the right word, but what things made, made him stand out in this? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll just lay it out. So the first thing he said is that it was a normal fare and he dropped her off. Eventually, when he would speak to Brian Parsons, Peter's father, as I said, who was a retired investigator at the time, um, that's when he really started to change his version of events. So when he talked to Brian, he said, oh, well, I did drop her off at home, but she got out on the wrong side of the taxi and walked away from her door. Mm -hmm. And I saw her trip and fall. And then I left. Brian would then go on to access video security footage from a bus that happened to be in the area that night. Now, he never got to see it, mm-hmm. but he was trying to help instruct the police. So he, you know, Brian finds out based on the timeline and the map, this bus would have been there mm-hmm. at exactly this moment. So he tells the police, you got to watch this tape. They call him back and say, we watch it. There's nothing on it. And Brian says, no, you have to keep watching. Watch it to the end. They watch it again and find that the taxi remains in the area after he said he dropped Holly off. Mm -hmm. So Brian brings this up with the taxi driver when he's interviewing him. And he says, why were you still there? What, you know, why, why were you in the area? And he said, Oh, well, I wanted to go back and check on her. But when I got back, she was gone. And then he goes on to change his story again and again. So then he says at one point, Oh, actually I stole cash from her. Mm-hmm. And that's that's part of the reason why he says that he was in the area and why he went back. And then he says later, oh, I, I felt so guilty. I donated it to some charities involving disability. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And then when I interviewed him, he said some very disturbing things that, again, just don't... It doesn't feel like the way that somebody recounts a night of their life if there's nothing else there. Other than the location in the cab, are, are there any other aspects of the story that make the official findings really doubtful that stand out to you? Yeah, I just think that the main thing that was overlooked was Holly's intelligence mm-hmm. and her capability and anybody who knew her. I mean, you just there's just no way 
you would get lost and confused and put yourself in such a dangerous situation and go on this incredibly unlikely path. I mean, yes, the location, yes, the, the taxi driver's changing story, all of this should have been looked into. But really, I think the biggest flaw was their inability to see Holly Bartlett as a fully dimensional, um, functioning, capable, smart young woman. Now, these red flags, unanswered questions that we just went through led to so many people in the community, like you mentioned, Tim Busquette, Holly's friends and family, having big questions about the police force's official findings. Right. Eventually, the police did go to go take the step to allow another police department to do an operational review, I believe it was That's called. right. Yeah. Can you kind of talk about what that is and what the findings of this other force was? Yeah, so I'm ashamed to admit, actually, that when that came out in the news, um, even as a journalist at the time, I remember hearing that and thinking, well, I guess they, you know, they did their due diligence. They got another force to look at it. But it was only really when I dove into it working on this project now mm-hmm. um, that I learned what an operational review is. And here's the important thing is that the review was never meant to determine whether the case should be reopened or not. Mm-hmm. So when you read it, and in this report, the words suspicious and foul play arise, mm-hmm. and they're like slamming HRP, the Halifax Regional Police Department, for a number of damning flaws in the investigation, including at one point telling the family to go talk to a medium, a psychic, mm-hmm. or not canvassing until weeks and months later, and then even when they do, it's only a few people. I mean, and then turning away information from Peter Parsons. Like, they enumerate all of these flaws in the investigation, but then at the end, because of the nature of this review mm-hmm. and the mandate, their hands are tied. Mm-hmm. So the, the phrasing is something like, in the absence of any evidence that would point to, you know, Um, a criminal act, we must uphold the original finding that this was a fatal accident, which was the classification um, determining Holly's manner of death. But they they themselves lay out the failure to investigate. So it's a very frustrating read. And it was incredibly, um, you know, just... It, it just kind of demolished the family because at that point they'd been keeping this hope alive and they'd been trying to work with the police force and trying to have faith and, you know, it, and, and then this. Yeah, it's almost like um, it was another police force from Montreal that did this, but it wasn't so much like a reinvestigation. It was more like for, coming from the financial world. I see it more as like an audit and they kind of failed Yeah, the exactly. Audit. It was like a, the Ville de Quebec police service and, you know, it's anytime you look at like... Um, somebody investigating themselves for mm-hmm. wrongdoing. Yes, it was a separate police force, but you know, yeah. It didn't it wasn't even though they did it did have the feeling of rigor and independence, they were locked in the end of it. They couldn't say this this appears to be a suspicious death and should be treated as such. We mentioned earlier and talked a bit about Holly's story being featured by, you know, CBC did that piece on Fifth Estate. There was some local local coverage, like with Tim Biscat. But nothing to nothing as deep of a dive as what you've done about uh, what you and your team have done on what happened to Holly Bartlett. So tell me a bit about the process of of what you did on the show and kind of the work that went into it. Right. So the first stage was actually um, a TV show. Uh, th- so AMI, Accessible Media Inc., and Ocean Entertainment. 
um, worked together to bring this six-part television series off the ground. And I actually joined the team as a researcher for um, the TV show. And then when I learned they were doing a podcast, I basically begged them to let me um, help them with it because my background is in radio and because we just had this incredible vault of information um, at the ready. And I mean, day one, even as a researcher on this on this thing, you know, you walk in, you look at these documents. We had a little map up on the wall of Holly's alleged route, according to the police. And you just cannot help but stand there and stare at it like how could this have happened this way Mm -hmm. so yeah I just got completely sucked in and it's almost like somebody hit fast forward and then I just woke up like six months later (laughs) and you you use uh throughout the show you use the word reinvestigation and I think it's it's fair to use that because you're really among the six or seven episodes that there are you're really kind of turning over a lot of new rocks, but also just re-examining kind yeah. of the information that already came out. Was that your goal with this, to, to reinvestigate? Absolutely. I mean, you know, when I first met Peter Parsons and the Bartlett's, you know, I told them straight out, like, it would be unethical for me to make any commitment to you about solving this or, you know, bringing this to any kind of resolution. Mm-hmm. That would just, it wouldn't be right for me to make a promise like that that I can't keep. But, yeah, I I committed to them that I would kind of turn over every rock. And that was really what they were looking for. And, I mean, you know how it is with any unsolved case or a case that has a result that doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. That's what you have to do. You have to go back to square one and look at every single detail and, and start start from the very beginning and go from there. Yeah. Now, we won't get too deep into what you've uncovered on the show, because I imagine a lot of people who listen are going to go and dig deeper into the story, but did you, do you feel like it was a success? Like, did you, were you able to shed new light on the story or gather new information about what happened to Holly? We did gather new information, and we do believe that we have um, an answer, a theory about what most likely happened to Holly Bartlett on that night. Um... But I would also just say that in our research, we learned so much about what it's like to move through the world as a blind person. And I think that that's um, critical information, uh, not only in understanding Holly, but just in learning how to respectfully receive other members of our you know, communities and lives who have vision loss. You know, people who li- who are listening to this that want to dig deeper into the story and follow along in your investigation, how do they find your show and how do they find the TV show? So the podcast, What Happened to Holly Bartlett, is available on all podcast platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. And the TV show, which is six episodes, mm-hmm. What Happened to Holly Bartlett, can be found on AMI's website. So if you just Google Accessible Media Inc., and what happened to Holly Bartlett, the six episodes will come right up. Great. Is that free online? Like anywhere It is. Oh, it's wow. completely free. Yep. That. Like HBO. Yeah. Um, anything other than that, anything else you think we didn't get into that you want to? Basically, I just, um, it's strange to say it because I never got to meet Holly Bartlett, but I feel like I know her now. And I think a study of her life is just so worthy Mm -hmm. she was um an extraordinary human and her family the bartlett's um her mother marion and her sisters amanda and kim have just been 
rock solid and steadfast and I just have so much admiration for them and yeah anytime I talk about the show I just want to thank them for letting us tell Holly's story. Holly's story as I said in the beginning is proof that bad things happen to good people and when they do happen the only comfort we can possibly have is in a belief that something will be done about it justice or some other form of a statement declaring that society won't stand for this. Sadly, it seems to me that Holly's loved ones are left without even that. I only hope that the attention and awareness of Holly's story will both motivate additional investigation and that through Holly's story, we sighted people learn more about what it means to live with blindness. And with that, we'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. If you want to dig deeper into this story, you can join me and my best friend Randy for the Nightcap post-show episode. You can subscribe to them at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. Now I'll end by giving thanks to those who assisted in this episode. First of all, a huge thanks to our guest, Maggie Rahr, for sharing her deep knowledge of Holly's case with us. I wholeheartedly recommend her show, What Happened to Holly Bartlett, to anyone listening to this. I've provided a link to it and the companion television documentary in the show notes, and I'll be playing a trailer for the podcast at the end of this episode. Now, I'd also like to give a shout-out to Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause for providing the musical themes for this episode. You can check out both of these great bands by following the links in the episode notes. And for the biggest thanks of all, I want to thank anyone who's listening, as without you, I'd have no excuse to spend so much of my free time on this show. For anyone out there who wants more nighttime, check out my Patreon campaign. For a dollar a month, you can access the ad-free premium feed, which provides early releases of the episodes. And then, for a couple dollars more, you can access the Nightcap After Show episodes, in which I and a guest climb even further down the rabbit hole than what you hear here in the main episodes. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the newest members to the group. Tom Evans and Alex Hooper, I appreciate your generous support at nighttime. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities, either on or off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Now, until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright. Jordan Bonaparte. Just before sunrise, on the morning of Saturday, March 27th, a steel worker was arriving for his shift at the north base of the McKay Bridge in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. It was minus 10 degrees. There was something red laying at the base of one of the massive concrete abutments on the frozen earth. He realized it was a person, a dead body, he thought. But Holly Bartlett's heart was still beating. 
Holly Bartlett was found unconscious under the McKay Bridge after a night out with her friends. She was laying underneath the bridge for five hours, breathing. The 31-year-old's death was ruled an accident. Drunk, blind girl, case closed. No foul play is suspected. They didn't even have the autopsy done. How can there be six different stories to how that went down? That's the million-dollar question. This has become one case that was never solved, and it should have been. I really would like to know what happened to Holly. Somebody knows. I'm Maggie Rahr, and this is What Happened to Holly Bartlett.